Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing your sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We help manufacturers grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And very special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Oribe. If you're overwhelmed by Google Analytics data and not sure how to turn it into action insights to improve your website conversions, you can get a free 10-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting oribi.io slash marketingbook. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. And use that link to get 30% off your first three months. And unlike Google Analytics, you'll get a helpful and friendly conversion expert available 24-7 to answer your questions and show you nifty tricks and hacks to optimize your conversions. I'll have more details in a bit. Now, regular listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast may notice that there's something different about this episode because there was no author introducing themselves at the beginning of the show as usual. And that's because after 250 interviews with authors, I'm going to share the audio from a presentation I made recently to the American Marketing Association chapter in Birmingham, Alabama, whose current president is Jamie Paris, who I mentioned a few times in the talk. The title of the talk was Three Big Ideas from 250 Marketing and Sales Books Every Modern Marketer Needs to Know. And it's a celebration of the first 250 episodes. Don't worry about taking notes. You can download the slides and my script at this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. No registration is required. Just click on the link and they're all yours. I hope you enjoy the talk as much as I did giving it. And if you would like me to present to your organization, let's have some fun. Hit me up, yo. And now, on with the show. Thank you very much. How many folks here have the marketing role? Marketing role? Oh, great. And some sales folks, right? Smart salespeople. Now, what I'm going to do is, so it's, it's just three ideas from 250 marketing and sales books. And these are, we're not going to talk about all the tips and tactics and stuff that's, this isn't like a TikTok strategy session here or, or Snapchat or whatever the latest thing is, whatever you kids are listening to. But it's three things that are really valuable for marketers and particularly the first thing. And then the next two things are applicable to any business. And sometimes some of you may have heard the expression that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So as I keep reading all these books, and I'll explain to you this, these issues I have, why I have to keep reading these books, that there are certain recurring things that I just see can make marketers and businesses really, really successful. So 
All of you marketers, I have a feeling that you would like to be the kind of marketer that every CEO wants to hire and can't afford to lose. And there, uh, there's a real skills crisis out there, so the demand for the marketers truly is getting higher and higher. Salaries are going up for people to have the right skills. So I want you to keep that in mind. Now, you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Quick backstory on the two books that have had the biggest impact on my career. So after I got out of the Army, I went back to school, went to get an MBA, and I thought, you know, I, want, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up, and I still don't. But I would look at all these different lines of work and think, oh, what, you know, what's that, what do those people do? What do those people do? And I'd, I'd often read a book to learn more about what those different lines of work were. So one day, I had an interview in New York at one of your sponsors, Merrill Lynch. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, I went to lunch with a buddy of mine I'd been in the Army with, and he was working on Wall Street. And he said, you know, I know you really well. Have you ever thought of working in advertising? I said, I don't know much about that. Yeah, thanks for mentioning it. I went back to school, and I asked one of the professors who had worked in advertising, I said, what's one book I could read so I could figure out, okay, is that for me? Do I like it, not like it? And she gave me a copy of Ogilvy on Advertising, which in the 1980s was a pretty new book. And I read that thing, and I thought, I love this. This is awesome. I found it. That is what I want to do. I want to go work in advertising. I could rule out all the other lines of work. So I went off to work in New York City on uh, Madison Avenue. It, I got in with the J. Walter Thompson ad agency, and then I worked at Gray, and these were like some of the biggest ad agencies, and, and I loved it. It was great. It was a great line of work. And then even when I started my own firm years ago, it was an advertising agency. And you know, some of you older folks might remember that, I mean, you had a captive audience, you advertised, and those people would buy what you told them to. I'm oversimplifying, but it was really, really powerful. So a few years ago, I started to realize that there were some serious cracks in the foundation. Like, you know, this is, this is kind of going away. I, what, what's happening to this ad thing? You know, the commissions were going away and, and all that sort of thing. And I started to feel like you know, I was running out of gas and I was feeling irrelevant. It really bothered me. I was starting to feel like a, a dinosaur. And I felt like I was growing dinosaur scales. And I was starting to have to do things like go to client meetings and bring these website people with me. But I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, yeah, we'll, we'll throw in some websites. That's not a problem. And then I kept getting all these questions about this thing that was clearly a fad. I'm talking about social media. So it was a day of reckoning. And so what I did is I went back to what I was doing in grad school, where I would just start reading books, just trying to figure out what was going on. And one day, I discovered a book called The New Rules of Marketing and PR by David Meerman Scott. And that was the first edition. It's now in its sixth edition, 10 years old. It's in 30 languages, and it's uh, uh, used in a lot of uh, universities. And I read that and thought, oh, that is great. That's, that's where all this is going. I kinda, maybe I kind of see the future. I, f- I was filled with hope. And then it, I would go to these marketing conferences, and I would, I'd know that some of these authors would be there. And I would have like read their book on a Kindle, and then I would go and buy the book at a bookstore, put it in the suitcase, fly to the conference just to get their autograph. Hey, some of you people collect autographed sports memorabilia. I collect autographed sales and marketing books, so don't judge. So here I am. I got to meet David Merriman Scott, and you can see the book right there. It was, just, it was so exciting. So, and I always listen to podcasts, and I enjoyed them. And I said, I want to start a podcast, and I want to interview these authors. So I started the marketing book podcast, and it's gotten these accolades from like Forbes and LinkedIn. It's got like a million downloads, and it's listeners in 150 countries. And it's not even my job. I do this on the side. It's, uh, I read the books on the weekend and that sort of thing. And uh, I will share with you, though, if you're thinking about starting a podcast like this, about my 10th interview in, that's when I realized 
I was actually going to have to read every one of these books <laughs> before I interview. It's like, oh, what, it's like taking the wrong exit on the interstate and you can't turn around for a while. It's like, oh, this is great. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, there was a downside. It's really cut into my scotch drinking. Now, Jamie tried to help me with that last night. But I know what you guys are all asking. I already know. You're saying 250 books. Wow. What's the book I need to read? What's the one book? Make a good book recommendation for me, Douglas. So you might think I'm going to suggest like uh, Seth Godin or David Merriman Scott or any number of these other folks that have just written terrific books. And they're all good. And I get to pick the books, so I know that I'm picking the really good ones to read and, and interview. But no, the best book is by Sarah Cooper. She's the author of 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, How to Get By Without Even Trying. <laughs> Now, that was a special April Fool's Day episode, but it was great. Let me just show you two of the tricks. One of them is translate percentages into fractions. So say you're at, you're at the office and somebody says, okay, so about 25% of people are clicking on this button. Now, you know, we know you haven't been paying attention, so what you say is, so about one in four. Your math skills will be the envy of everyone in that room. <laughs> Here's one more. Ask the presenter to go back a slide. And it doesn't really matter where, which slide it is. <laughs> but everyone in the room is going to think you're paying much more attention than they are. And then you can go back to doing what most of you are doing right now, checking Instagram. So before we get into the three big ideas for you, the, the first one is specifically for marketers and for all of you that have anything to do with marketing, I want you to understand there's an obstacle you're always going to have. It's going to be there in 100 years, probably. Everyone's going to be challenged with this, but just understand that this is an obstacle, and you need to deal with it every day with everyone you meet. Okay. Now, so before I get to the first one, I just want to warn you. You might want to put your forks down. What I'm going to say might upset some of you. Ready? Okay. Number one, marketers have an image problem. There was a study by Fournay's group a couple years ago about CEO perceptions of marketers. And who can guess what percentage of CEOs trust marketers? 25% trust? 7%. Who said, who said that? Was that you? Respect, yo. <laughs> Uh, one other tip, you don't want to ask someone to go back a slide if it is the first slide. Just <laughs> I figured that out the hard way. Okay, so 80% of CEOs don't really trust marketers. And what that means is four and five. Four and five. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Four and five. Thank you. I'm so sorry I shared those two tricks with you all. <laughs> But they don't trust that marketers understand the financial realities of their companies. Okay? The truth is, and just to add to that, there is a perception that marketers are arts and crafts party planners <laughs> who work in the make it pretty department. Now, I'm in, in that, I'm in that line of work. I know it's not true. It's really a great misunderstanding, but that's the perception you're dealing with. One of the many books on the podcast was by Thomas Barda and Patrick Barwise, and it's called The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader. And it was one of the large, it involved one of the largest surveys of marketers, people who work for marketers. It was massive, using a lot of data from McKinsey. And in 
their book, one of the things they said dealing with this perception is early in our study, we spoke with international CMOs about their work, asking, what do you do? It was interesting how different people answered. Some said things like, I manage the brand or I run our marketing. Words like these don't go down well with company leaders. In the words of marketing professor and columnist Mark Ritson, too many marketers go into a room full of executives from their company and warble on about the need to build brand awareness and brand equity. No one gives a F word except you, and presumably you are already on board. Good marketers work out how to link what they do with what other stakeholders within your organization want, employee retention, improved profits, clearer leadership. Similarly, in the book, The Four A's of Marketing by Jagdish Sheth and uh, Rahindra Sasodia, they talk about how CEOs and corporate boards are growing increasingly skeptical of the marketing function's ability to deliver reasonable returns on resources invested. Scholars have suggested that marketing has lost its seat at the table when it comes to making strategic lessons at many companies because of its failure to perform. And Bob Hoffman, author of Marketers Are From Mars, Consumers Are From New Jersey, reminds us that there is no bullshit like brand bullshit. When you're using those term brands, I realize some of you have that in your title, be careful using those terms around what I call civilians, okay? <laughs> So what's a marketer to do? What's a marketer to do? Drink heavily. It's hard to get vodka this early here, so. Barda and Barwise, the book I was just telling you about, they have a very bold, uh, very specific suggestion for marketers, and that is get in the revenue camp. Get in the revenue camp. That's what the most successful marketing leaders do in the minds of company leaders and in reality. In my interview with Debbie Gagish, author of Rise of the Revenue Marketer, Auburn grad. Any Auburn people here? Yeah, War Eagles. Okay. Okay. All right. Are there any Alabama people here? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm required by law to ask that question. So, in the interview I had with her, she said several times, the CMO who is related to revenue stays and the CMO who is not related to revenue leaves. It's as simple as that. So how do you get into the revenue camp? How do you get into this revenue camp of which you speak, Douglas? Think of it as that little 20% on that graphic I showed earlier. So the questions uh, are, what are our company financial goals? Now, a lot of you may know that, but uh, how far into that have you dug? Uh, do you understand what the company financial goals are? And some of your company, the companies you're working for may not be real clear on that. And they're amazed when a marketer starts to ask questions like that. Um, another one is, what are our company sales goals? I mean, salespeople tend to know that sort of thing, but that goes a long way. And another one, who is our most profitable customer? There are a lot of people, a lot of marketers I know who go and ask that in a company and they say, gosh, I don't know. Well, well, Mr. and Mrs. CFO, maybe you should start figuring that out, you know? For once, the marketer is able to give it back <laughs> to, the, to the other people. Another one is, what's the average lifetime value of our customer? So speaking of lifetime value of customer, there was a book by two folks from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business called The Customer Centricity Playbook. And I'll read the subtitle, Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value, a whole marketing book based on finding out what your customer lifetime value is to help direct and budget for effective marketing approaches. 
Another one is uh, Eddie Yoon. He wrote Super Consumers. And in, in that book, he talks about how most companies, most brands have maybe only 10% of their customers who are these super consumers, but they could represent 30 to 70% of your sales. And often, they're less price sensitive. Do you know who your super consumers are? Maybe not, but you could start to figure this out, and your, your stature as a marketer really starts to rise. And there was another book, uh, which I think is the best book I've read for people who want a, a really successful marketing career. Angelina Jaspers wrote Marketing Flexology, How to Outsmart Change and Future-Proof Your Career. And she's had a long, very successful marketing career. And in this really carefully written book, only 149 pages, but who keeps track of how long these books are? <laughs> the guy that reads them. But she, look, she was sort of looking back and showing over all these years, these were the things that the really successful marketers did. It was really fascinating. And one of the things, she uncovered, she uncovered this unique mindset that only the, the really successful marketers had. And I, she says, I call it a business-first mindset. And cultivating this trait is by far the most important thing a dynamic marketing leader can do. It goes like this. When faced with any business decision, place your company and customers first, before your team and before yourself. It may feel counterintuitive, but it works. You need to read the rest of the book, but you'll understand this. And she jokingly says, you can't build a solid marketing career at an insolvent company. <laughs> so she also talks about developing, at one point in the book, she talks about developing an executive dashboard for communicating with your, your management. And she says it needs to focus on business outcomes and include metrics that use the standard language of business, accounting. The Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania asserts the story of any company, no matter the size, the industry, or the country of origin, is told through its financial records and reports. Income, debt, revenue versus expenses, compensation, and cost of retaining customers can all be found on financial statements. Financial data is understood by any individual in the business world, from investors to employees. Using existing financial data as the basis for your marketing metrics will ensure it is widely understood across the organization and respected for its accuracy. One last thing, back to this book, it wasn't all gloom and doom. They talk quite a bit in the book about what the really successful marketers are doing now. And they said, our interviews, this is Barda and Barwise, our interviews with the most successful marketers have one thing in common, a top management <laughs> viewpoint. Top management viewpoint. Rather than talking about marketing, they spoke of the business as a whole. They didn't talk a lot about advertising, branding, or customer insights, they spoke about revenue, costs, and profits, and how they could serve the customer better. The real marketing leaders were concerned with one thing, how marketing helps the company achieve its biggest priorities. One last bit of advice. A lot of people look at marketing plans as dog and pony shows. Yeah, and who better at dog and pony shows than marketers? But that's, again, that's the perception. It might be loaded with strategy, but one thing to help you to make sure that you're in that 20% is to do what Malcolm McDonald talked about in his 46th book, Malcolm McDonald on Marketing Planning. And he explains that a marketing plan only needs to answer two questions, or it should answer two questions before it gets into any kind of tactics and all that sort of thing that we love to talk about. And those two questions are... What are your key target markets in order of priority? And 
In those key target markets, what is your company's sources of differential advantage? Now, you need to read the book, and again, it's not a long one, but he explains how to go about getting those two questions answered. And it's amazing. Those are the straw that stirs the drink. And if you as a marketer add that to your marketing plans, first you have to go find it, because I guarantee a lot of folks are going to say, whoa, you just make things pretty. What are you asking these financial questions for? You will start to end up in that 20%. One other last thing I want to mention, Malcolm McDonald in his book, he says, with a nod to marketer's obsession with all things digital, and the word digital, and I realize some of you have the word digital in your title, but again, it, it may not be helping you if you keep talking about digital, digital. Malcolm McDonald explains that almost every course, seminar, workshop today has the word digital in its title. The problem, however, is that unless a company has a robust strategy for what it sells and to whom, it is impossible to have a digital strategy. Without proper needs-based segmentation, which his book is all about, any digital strategy will be ineffective. There's a well-known cartoon showing the chief marketing officer addressing the board, and in answer to the question about why net profits are down by 30%, they say, yes, that is a pity, but the good news is that our likes on Facebook have doubled. So what do you measure? We don't have time to go into all the measurement, but I wanted to offer one suggestion. There is an excellent book on aligning your sales and marketing. It's called Align to Achieve by Tracy Eiler and Andrea Austin. And they tell the story of how the two of them, one was head of marketing, one was head of sales, they helped to align their company's sales and marketing, and they had greater profitability and faster growth, which last thing I heard, <laughs> that's what the CEO wanted. So they talk about focusing, if you only focus on one thing, focus on pipeline, pipeline a sales term, pipeline, and different companies define it different ways, but we're not talking about leads. We're talking about actual opportunities that sales and marketing agree could turn into revenue. So in other words, you may have heard uh, salespeople say, yeah, they're generating leads, but the leads are weak. They're terrible. So I mean, we can all generate a lot of leads, but are they any good? Is it, you know, are, are you wasting your sales team's time having to weed through bad leads? So the pipeline can help you there. So... Number two, enough about that. Enough beating up on the marketers. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you about this sweet, free 10-day offer from the nice folks at Aribi that does not require a credit card, will make you look smart. And frankly, if you don't take advantage of it, I might wonder if you're listening to the right podcast. Plus, there's an additional special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Have you ever looked at a Google Analytics report or tried to explain it to someone? As marketers were drowning in website data, have you ever looked at a Google Analytics report or tried to explain it to someone? <laughs> Getting actionable insights from Google Analytics isn't easy. It was built for analytics experts with plenty of time, technical resources, and a deep understanding of that platform, unlike many of us. Oribe's goal is to make web analytics easy and accessible for everyone. And the Oribe platform has proven to be a game changer for thousands of businesses. That's because Oribe translates your website data into actionable insights and helps you focus on what really matters and what requires your attention. And unlike Google Analytics, you get a helpful, friendly conversion expert available 24-7 to answer your questions and show you nifty tricks and hacks to optimize your conversions. Remember, this is a free 10-day trial that does not require a credit card. So even if you don't end up using Oribe past the trial, you'll get access to all the reports and insights to improve your website conversions, and you'll get 24-7 access to a conversion expert. But wait, there's more. Marketing Book Podcast listeners who sign up for Aribi will get 30% off their first three months. With savings like that, 
you might consider sending your host a bottle of single malt scotch. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and take advantage of this offer, go to aribi.io slash marketingbook. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. There's also a link to it on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, back to the show. The next thing, the most successful marketers, the most successful companies have deep insights into their customers. Deep insights into their customers. So Seth Godin, in his book, This is Marketing, he says, marketing, the effective kind, is about understanding our customers' worldview and desires so we can connect with them. It's focused on being missed when you're gone on bringing more than people expect to those who trust us. It seeks volunteers, not victims. There's three kinds of companies. There are companies that focus primarily on themselves, their own operations, their products, their their employees. That's the primary focus. There are some companies that they'll never admit it, but they're primarily focused on their competition. Monkey see, monkey do. A lot of their strategic decisions are based on what the competition is doing. That's just what that drives them. And the third kind of company, which I think is in the minority, are those that are focused on their customers. Now, I'm not saying all companies focus on all three things, but it's a matter of which is the biggest priority. Which one of those companies do you think Amazon is? Customer focused. Yeah. And legend has it, and I've read this enough. In fact, I read it on the internet, so I know it's true. When Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, goes to a meeting, he always wants an empty chair there. And the reason why is because that represents the customer. And the reason he needs that chair is because somebody will be talking about something and they're completely forgetting what the customer, what's important to them. He'll point at that chair and say, hello, she already told us she's not going to pay for shipping, you know, or whatever. Or they don't want that. We have the data. He keeps pointing at that chair. Now, even a big company like that, it's hard to keep the focus on the customer. And apparently, people getting ready for meetings with the boss man, they say, oh, wait a minute, you know what? He's going to point at that damn chair. Oh, the customer, I completely forgot about that. So he said, our, our number one conviction and idea and philosophy and principle is customer obsession as opposed to competitor obsession. Has anyone here heard of the term buyer personas? Buyer personas. That's like where you use a, you create an archetype of your particular ideal buyer that you want to want to go after. It's almost like criminal profiling, where you you understand uh, this person. And Adele Ravel's book, Buyer Persona, is excellent. And I would urge all of you to go to her website, buyerpersona.com, and she's got these great eBooks. And one of them is on buyer personas. Explain it. And another one is on the five rings of insight. And I would urge you to read her book, but until, until the book arrives from Amazon, read about these five insights. And if you, as a marketer, are able to get a little bit of information about these five insights that are on the, your customer's mind, you will have an unfair advantage. I guarantee it. We use what she talks about in the book with our clients, and it's just amazing. It's just amazing. And, and sometimes the clients will even say, wow, you really understand our customers better than... And I'm like, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> we, just, we just did what she said in the book. And they also realize that there's a whole lot that goes on in that customer's life before they come to you. And that's the big opportunity for uh, creating content. Another thing that uh, is helpful for thinking about your customer is there was yet another excellent book by 
Tara Nicole Nelson called the transformational consumer. And in the book, she talks about how every purchase someone makes, big or small, from a train locomotive to a pack of gum, there's some sort of transformation they're looking for in their life. And if you just dig one or two layers down, you'll start to realize, oh, our product is actually part of this other transformation that they're looking to have. And you start, that's another way to get into, uh, into your customer's mind. Uh, another book, which is one of my favorite titles by Christian Zhivago, Roadmap to Revenue, How to Sell the Way Your Customers Want to Buy, she outlines this excellent approach she's done over the years for clients to grow their revenue using marketing and sales. Can you guess what the linchpin is of the entire book, her entire process? Talk to your customers. <laughs> Interview your customers. And don't let the salespeople do it. They're busy. They're doing sales. Go and talk to them. And she shows you exactly how to do it. And she says, these are the things to avoid. It brings you unbelievable insights. There was another book by uh, Martin Lindstrom called Small Data. And he talks about how marketers are almost, we're all over-reliant on data and making all our marketing decisions. And he talks about how, I think it was David Ogilvy who originally said that Marketers use data like a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination. So he talks about this one company in the book where the power of just getting customer insights, this one company, this, the CEO required every employee once a year to spend 24 hours with a customer just so they could, because they saw how powerful that was at gaining insights. And in um, the book by David Cancel and Dave Gerhardt, Conversational Marketing, How the World's Fastest Growing Companies Use Chatbots to Generate Leads 24-7, 365, and How You Can Too. They said, remember, whoever gets closest to the customer wins. Whoever gets closest to the customer wins. And in a, a, the book, The Invisible Brand, Marketing the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning by William Ammerman, he explains the power goes to those who know the customer best. I mean, I could go on and on, but let me go. <laughs> Basically, the better you understand the customer, you'll do it. Okay, this is a marketing group, so we have to talk about content. Or, as Rebecca Lieb calls it in her content strategy book, content, the atomic particle of marketing. And in her book and in several others, they talk about something that Jamie and I were talking about last night, about how, uh, I think it was serious decisions. They found that like 60 to 70% of all the marketing content that's produced is never being used. And they, there's a lot of speculation as to why, but the, you know, the, maybe the, the sales team can't find it. Maybe you know, There's a lot of reasons. It's complicated to get it just right. But the number one reason why a lot of that marketing content doesn't get used, it's because it's a lack of buyer insight. Maybe it's all about your product and not about your customer's problems and the insights that they've shared with you. Do you want a great idea for creating content that your customers really like and that reflects what they want to know? Answer their questions. There's a terrific book, They Ask You Answer, by Marcus Sheridan. And he talks about how he had a fiberglass pool company in Virginia in um, 2008 happened. Everyone can, you know, the real estate crashed. Nobody wanted pools at that point. Almost, he almost went out of business. They had been spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on advertising. And he didn't want to declare bankruptcy because he didn't want to lose his house. So he just sat down one day and said, you know, <laughs> until they come and take it away, <laughs> I'm just going to start answering every question I ever got from a customer on my website. What does a pool cost? What's the difference between a fiberglass and a concrete pool? What are the pros and cons of fiberglass pool? You know, every question, 
who are the Richmond, Virginia pool companies? If you Google that now, you'll find his website because within a year, it was the number one pool site in the world. He was just answering questions. He's now become this international keynote speaker, best-selling author. He's got a second edition coming up for which he's going to be interviewed on the Marketing Book Podcast. Please stay tuned. And the fear that people had of doing business with him plummeted because he was answering their questions. They trusted him, and their trust just soared. And finally, there was another book on the podcast recently called Growth IQ. And every business owner wants their business to grow. So regardless of what you're doing in marketing or sales or promotional products or whatever, they're trying to get their business to grow. Her book outlines basically the 10 different ways that companies grow. And some of this was not new, but she recapped it in a fascinating way. And every one of those 10 sections where she said, this is how they grow. Like for example, um, sell more products to your current customers, sell more products, sell more current products to new customers, things like that. Every one of those case studies she showed, the winners were the ones that just understood their customers better. And the number one way that she talks about in her book of uh, growing is focusing on your, the experience that your customers have with you. That's a big driver of growth now is companies that are focusing on the experience they have when they interact with your company. So with that in mind, let's go to the third. Your most powerful marketing is the customer experience you deliver. And it brings to mind a great quote from Maya Angelou. I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. So why do you think this is more important now than, say, 10 years ago? We weren't having speakers at the AMA talk about customer experience 10 years ago, I don't think. Not much. Why? Why do you think? Um, is it just because of digital, there's more transparency online? Exactly. Exactly. Because everyone has a bullhorn now. You know, it's, it's transforming whole governments, too. I mean, the, the power of people to communicate and to do their own research. One of the many ways that sales has changed. So in Brian Solis's book, X, The Experience When Business Meets Design, a great book, he talked about this one Bain & Company study where they studied 362 companies. And 80% of them thought that they were delivering a a good customer experience. So then Bain went and, and studied all the customers of those companies. Only 8% of those customers said that they were getting a halfway decent experience with those companies. So there's a big, big disconnect. And that's why there have been a number of books on the podcast about trying to better engineer uh, a customer experience that people will, will like. And it's not always something that can be delegated to the marketing person. In fact, if you look at that book, uh, Chief Customer Officer 2.0 by Jean Bliss, she's one of the greatest thought leaders on customer experience. And in her book, and she's done this at some of the biggest companies, improve the customer experience, and she's able to quantify every bit of it, how it was related to revenue. One little bit of uh, advice, though. She said, if you're the head of marketing, and they come in and say, okay, you're going to be in charge of customer experience now. Do you know what she suggests that marketing people say? You say no. It won't end well, usually. Because if you're in charge of customer experience, are you in charge of the company? Are you in charge of the sales team? Are you in charge of the shipping, the billing, all those sorts of things? Unless you as the marketing person have a clear buy-in and, and support from the top, you're probably not going to succeed. So 
because it has to be engineered into your company. And that's why we're seeing a resurgence of word of mouth marketing. You've all probably heard about word of mouth marketing. Books like Fizz by Ted Wright and Talk Triggers by uh, Jay Baer and Daniel Lemon. But one of the things you need to understand about word of mouth marketing, it very often has to be something engineered into your product experience for it to be effective because it's you can't really fool folks that way. The other thing about customer experience, just as a reminder, is that in Nicholas Webb's book, What Customers Crave, he talks about how 70% of Americans will pay more for a better customer experience. And in terms of selling to a new customer, various studies show your chances are maybe less than 20%. But the chance of selling to an existing customer that knows and likes and trusts you could be 60 to 70%. And he also says the value of a customer could, some, could, could often be 10 times their initial purchase. So the other book is a great title, Marketing to the Entitled Consumer by Nick Worth, Dave Franklin, and Josh Burnoff. And all your customers think they're entitled now. This has more to do with um, not so much the customer attitude, but their expectations of how they want to be treated. <laughs> and they talked about, Forrester has this, they, they analyze all these companies in terms of their customer experience, big, big brands. And so then Watermark Consulting went through and analyzed the stock performance of all those companies that are studied on, the, on Forrester's index. The top performers over an eight-year period, stock performance, up 108%. The Standard & Poor 500 was 72%. But the companies that had the worst customer experience, 28%. There's a revenue connection there. So if you could only do one thing to try to start to focus on improving your customer experience, and again, it's not all just the marketing people, but the more you can evangelize this and lead your companies that way, is what Roger Dooley talks about in his book, Friction. If you can start to find the friction in your customer's life, you're going to start winning. So Amazon is obsessed with this. Did you know that they invented one-click ordering? Because there was just a little too much friction for people buying. Uh, and other companies now license it. Apple licensed it from Amazon, that technology. But if you can start to find where is the friction in my customer's life, you really start to differentiate yourself and you start to give them a much better experience. And finally, because I know we do have some sales folks here, one of the biggest ways to differentiate your company and I realize this is not your responsibility of some of you, is how you sell your sales process. Lee Sauls' book, he talks about how there are certain things a company can do to differentiate themselves, and, and they should, but the, one of the very, very biggest things is the, the sales process. So think about the sales process at a car dealership, and then look what CarMax did. They completely changed the, their sales process, and people liked it better. A lot of really successful companies now are re-looking at their sales process, how they sell, and that contributes very much to the customer experience. So, pressure's on you, salespeople. Three takeaways. Okay, this is the quiz. What's the first one? Marketers have an image problem. And we're just going to keep that in the room here, even though I'm recording this for episode 251. What's the second one? The most successful companies have deep insights into their customers. The winners know their customers. And your most powerful marketing is the customer experience you provide. So I hope that the ideas I've shared with you gets more of you into that 20% of uh, marketers that are uh, respected by their, by their CEOs. So please listen to the Marketing Book Podcast. If you would like a copy of these slides, I'm connected with a number of you on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn and we'll just message me and I'll send you a link to these slides. If you have any questions, please let me know. Thank you.
and that closes the book on episode 251 of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to the presentation as much as I did giving it. If you'd like me to give a talk to your organization, get in touch. I love meeting Marketing Book Podcast listeners. To get the slides and my script from this presentation, they're available at this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. No registration is required. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Aribi. To start turning your website data into actionable insights, get your free 10-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting aribi.io slash marketingbook. That's spelled O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. And don't forget, make sure to use that link to get 30% off your first three months. You can also find that link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Dilbert creator Scott Adams to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. Before we start, let me ask, who here is originally from the Birmingham area? Okay. Were any of you, you're from Birmingham? Okay, were any of you born in Birmingham? Raise your hand. Okay, good. I was born in LA. Lower Alabama. (laughs) That's right, I was born at Fort Rucker, where my dad was stationed at the time 60 years ago, next Monday. So I'm almost old. And the bigger point that's more significant is that I was born on Bruce Springsteen's 10th birthday. Next Monday, Bruce Springsteen's 70th birthday. So be on the lookout for that. And as uh, Jamie mentioned, I was a programming chair at the the chapter where I live in uh, Norfolk and Virginia Beach. And there were actually two of us. And it was a lot of work. So you know, my heart goes out to all of you, particularly you, all the programming folks. And just so you know, she was not involved in allowing me to come here, so don't blame her. But I can remember that it was, you know, it, was, it, was, it took a lot of time. It was very stressful. There would be one or two people that would complain that really, would really bother you. And then you would get these speakers in, and you would say, man, I, I think they're going to be okay. I, I hope this all works out. And then I remember one time we had a speaker, and he came in, flew him in from New York, and it didn't go well. It was, it was not a good speaker. And I heard about that, and I... And I felt like I'd really let the organization down. And the only reason I'm saying that is because in just a few minutes, Jamie, you're going to feel that way. (laughs) 